and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 188, recorded on May 9th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Well, hello, Wes. Let's do the news. Up first, a few headlines we thought you should know about. Starting with Linux 5.10 getting a big bump to its support cycle. Linux 5.10 is the latest long-term support kernel, but when it was announced, it promised only two years of maintenance till the end of 2022 or so. And for comparison, some prior kernels like 5.4 or 4.19 or even 4.14, those are all getting support well into 2024. This stands out in my mind specifically because I recall Greg KH saying, if some companies step up, we'll extend this longer, but I'm just not going to commit to it right now until we have that support. Well, guess what? That support showed up. Companies seem to have stepped up and helped with testing and other things of that nature. And Linux 5.10 will now be maintained until the end of 2026. That means Linux 5.10 gets six years of stable point releases. And well, that's great because we're going to see a lot of projects that are based on this kernel now. And it's a nice modern kernel. In fact, we've already seen some like Debian 11 and the next Google Android operating system. Another quick headline for you Visual Studio Code users out there. And yeah, your buddies, Chris and Wes, know not everyone's using Visual Studio Code, but sure seems popular. And a new release is notable for those of us living in the Linux desktop future. The April update introduced a feature you may not have noticed because it's not on by default. But if you're a Visual Studio Code user on Wayland, you're going to want to get the April update pretty quick. This release includes an update to VS Code's Electron base, bringing it to version 12. Version 12 of Electron is a major release for us Linux users because it includes Chromium 89, which has Wayland support. Now, like I said, it's not on by default, but we will have a link in the show notes. You can enable it. I've tried it with my setup and it works pretty well, but a little disclaimer, if you have a mixed DPI setup, you may have a weird cursor or menu sizing issue. So be aware of that. But otherwise, a nice update and one more step towards that all Wayland future. Speaking of open source Linux graphics, Michael Larable over at Pharonix has spotted a new GPU driver in the works. But this one isn't for a GPU that you can't even buy right now. No, this driver is for VMware's SVGA V3 next-gen virtual PCI graphics adapter, providing host-backed graphics acceleration for those VMware virtual machines. All you VMware users out there, celebrate. And you probably already know, but VMware has a long-standing series of these SVGA drivers that are actually backed by a mainline free software driver built into the kernel, and that's how this third version will work as well. Of course, V3 is aiming for efficiency and modernization improvements, and yes, it looks like there are indeed some performance improvements with V3. That's nice to see. Also in version 3 is support for accelerated guest graphics on ARM64. Although it's still unclear what the state of Vulkan support might be. And one last quick headline for today. We have some notable updates on the University of Minnesota affair. The Kernel Technical Advisory Board, also known as the TAB, has released their report. It includes a timeline of events in which they know when the actual hypocrite commits happened. It has a breakdown of the patches and even some Twitter discussion from November and December that seem to have discussed and debated the ethics of the research, which that time lines up November, December. That lines up with when the paper was accepted by the IEEE. The tab report concludes with a few suggestions about how the community, with the university included, 
can move forward, including establishing an internal review process by an experienced kernel developer for patches that are submitted from the University of Minnesota, with the tab noting that this is a practice that's already quite common in a number of companies and organizations. The tab also recommended the creation of a best practices document for researchers working with the kernel community, and the tab's going to work with some outside researchers to help get that drafted. Some guidelines could be good, you know, some some rules that researchers can follow. Additionally, this week, the IEEE released a statement on the research paper itself. It appears the paper was reviewed by four individuals in the fall and received a very positive overall rating questionably putting it in the top 5% of submitted papers. The reviewers did note that the fact that a malicious actor can attempt to intentionally add a vulnerability to an open source project is not new, but also acknowledged that the authors provide several new insights by describing why this might be easier than expected and why it might be difficult for maintainers to detect the problem. One of the program committee members briefly mentioned a possible ethical concern in their review, but that comment was not significantly discussed any further at the time, and IEEE acknowledges that they missed that. Their statement concludes with some actions to be taken by IEEE itself to help ensure that ethically questionable papers are not accepted in the future. Before we get to the discussion story this week, we wanted to tell you about our friends that make this show possible, like Linode. Head over to linode.com LAN. They are the largest independent cloud computing provider. And no matter what skill level you're at, you're going to find it works great for you. That's where we host everything. When we're building a new mail server for our community, we host it on Linode. When it was time to fire up NextCloud instance, we put it on Linode. Web servers, CDN, all of it. And Linode has object storage as well. So if you want some storage up in the cloud without a machine running in front of it, that's definitely something worth looking into. But I just love Linode for all of the great options they have for spinning up a classic VPS. I like getting SSH access into the machine and building what I might want to build from the ground up. But I completely respect and understand the people that just want to click one button and deploy because Linode has a bunch of options for that and they have done the work to make that work great. And if you run into any trouble, Linode comes with 24-7 customer support by phone or by ticket. And they have tons of guides and tutorials as well. And really their dashboard is so straightforward and easy to use, it's pretty self-explanatory. And there's a lot of great things about Linode, but what I love about Linode is they're easy to use. So if you're just not a server expert, you're fine. But if you are, if you know what you're doing, they don't get in your way. And striking that balance, that's like the perfect balance and it's very hard to do. But then again, Linode's been doing this since 2003. They focused on one thing and they've made sure they do it really, really well. Now they have super fast networking, crazy fast machines, 11 data centers worldwide, native SSDs on everything. I mean, it really screams. And they have plans that start around $5 a month and you can go up from there with lots of memory, CPU, GPU, or storage, depending on what you need. So you really probably just wanna check it out for yourself. Sign up today by going to linode.com LAN and get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. That's real money you can work with there to try out Linode and put it in production and put it through its paces. See how hard it is to use or how easy it is for you. And also see what its performance is like. And I think you'll find Linode is one of the fastest hosting providers out there. So go to linode.com LAN, get that $100 60-day credit, and of course, support the show. linode.com LAN. 
and support the show and get a way better cell phone plan at linux.ting.com. Linux.ting.com. Go there, see how much you can save, and then take 25 bucks off of that. Ting's new Set 12 plan, which gives you 12 gigs of data, unlimited talk, and unlimited text is just $35 a month. Wrap your noodle around that. 12 gigs? Man, if you just sync your podcasts and your music and your and do your app updates on Wi-Fi, 12 gigs is going to be way more than you're going to need. And unlimited talks and text? That's what's up for 35 bucks. But they have good family plans as well that let you share pooled data. And of course, every plan gets LTE and 5G because Ting's got multiple networks you can choose from. That's one of the power user moves thing about Ting is you can move over to Ting and then you pick the network that's best in your area. The power move. They need to call it like the Ting slide. You know, you slide into a better network deal, you pay less, and you get to pick the network. That's like the Ting slide. They can just take that. I'm an idea guy. I'm going to give it to them. Head over there right now and check it out at linux.ting.com. Every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service, their nationwide LTE and 5G service, which, amazingly, I cannot believe how many places have popped up 5G. Respect to the carriers. They're actually rolling that stuff out. But the best thing about Ting is no contracts ever. Three great networks to choose from, and it's simple to switch to Ting. And with all those networks, it probably means your phone already works. So go find out. Head over to linux.ting.com. Check your current phone, create an account, and pick the plan that's right for you. Then Ting will send you a SIM card. You pop that sucker in, and you get activated in minutes. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's new plans. So go check it out at linux.ting.com. Now for our discussion story today. Free software darling Audacity has new owners, and along with those new owners, a fresh controversy about telemetry. Earlier this week, we learned Audacity had been purchased by the Muse Group. An explanatory video was posted by Martin Keery, also known as Tantacruel, content of which was confirmed by the Audacity team to us via email. Yeah, they didn't add much in that email other than they were both nervous and excited. But the controversy you just mentioned, well, that controversy has become the predominant story now. It's centered around this first big patch to Audacity by the Muse Group. It's third-party tracking code for Google Analytics and Yandex. And as one commenter on the poll request noted, currently over 99.9% of reactions to the original commit are negative. Clearly, the users are overwhelmingly opposed to it. If this gets added, this will be a massive middle finger to people who have used Audacity all these years and will most likely result in a loss of users. Or maybe put another way, fork! Now, we should note that this poll request, which showed up on Audacity's GitHub earlier this week, would have tracking disabled by default and require the user to opt in. The author of the request, Dmitry Videnko, explained that universal Google Analytics would be used to track the following events. Sessions start and end. Errors, especially those coming from the SQLite 3 database engine, which they're now using to store all your recordings. Usage information for things like effects, sound generators, and analysis tools, as well as what file formats are used for import, export, and of course that regular old OS and Audacity version information. In addition to all that, there'd also be a UUID stored on your local machine that'd be used to identify sessions, and the web analytics service Yandex Metrica would be used to estimate daily active users. All right, so that's the facts, and so now some analysis and opinion. 
Uh, this change has just not gone down well. Uh, the main issue seemingly being the use of Google Analytics and Yandex instead of maybe an open source solution. It seems as though the Muse group either didn't understand and appreciate how the free software community would receive this kind of change, or perhaps not as generously, they just didn't care. You know, you could really kind of understand from a business how this comes about. You have a group of people, they take over something they're not intimately familiar with. They, they want to be a good steward. They have limited resources. And the first question that comes up is where do we focus our time? I mean, Muse Group's talked already about redoing the UI, and I like their thoughts are there. I think that I think it has some real potential, but they have to approach this practically. From the product owner and developer perspective, I think it's definitely understandable why you'd want more information about what's going on. You're new to the community. You want to prioritize what resources you have. And really, free and open source software is kind of a, a dark area where you don't have that. But if you're working on other services, especially web services, backend services, you've got logs, you've got instrumentation, you have your own metrics and telemetry that you can embed it's kind of a natural extension if you've worked in any of those other areas. Yeah, I agree. You can see how they arrive there from a business decision. And I believe Muse's other products in the Muse group use this Google Analytics package. So I think it's it's kind of understandable. Um, I think a big component of this is people don't like the fact that Google's involved. They don't want their information going to Google. But I'm not sure if that's enough. Like, I think some people just question if this is necessary at all. Shouldn't, shouldn't, um, a feature request or some, you know, an issue request be sufficient? Yeah, there's more than a few different arguments about why this particular PR is a bad idea. Some folks just don't like seeing Google or Yandex or any of these big third parties involved. And it would be interesting, what would the reception have been like if they were using a self-hosted analytics solution? Although I know there are other views out there that, well, then they could sort of collect whatever they want. And at least with some of these vendors, you have an idea of what that surface area is, even if you don't like whose hands it's in. The devil, you know. I mean, they're already collecting your information in a million other ways, I suppose. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I think that's the gist of the argument. I appreciate that this was going to be opt-in. I think that, you know, we just got to say that again. It's default, it's off. And I think that's that's notable. And I can, I can understand wanting information about what effects get used, because some of these could really use some love in Audacity. And there's a lot of elements of Audacity that could use some time and attention. We use it as a, as a daily tool. So we follow this pretty closely. And I think this is a good moment to point out why I like having as many of my tools free software as possible, because that's the only way our privacy is truly protected. I mean, yeah, sure, the Muse group could put this patch in. But if Audacity was a closed source app, we would have never found out about this. If this was some Adobe tool that was part of Creative Cloud, well, you just never know. You know, They would just ship it. It would be collecting information. But instead, this was discovered before it was even merged. So not only could you see that telemetry was being added, but you could see exactly what data was going to be collected. And that led to a big conversation and is where we are at now. And developers are justifying their position and the community is hashing it out. Kyle Rankin, Purism's chief security officer, has actually a pretty thought-provoking post on this that we'll link to. And it really kind of, it is a great example of why free software provides you a level of privacy and security that you really don't get from closed-source software. But back to this, Wes, you know, I'm, I'm kind of left with two really uncomfortable ideas in my head. Number one, I don't like how the Muse group announced the acquisition of Audacity to begin with from their lead designer on a YouTube video. It's okay. But there wasn't a lot of... Uh room left for the Audacity community. It wasn't targeted at them. 
Yeah, there wasn't something that came from the Audacity team. And as somebody who uses this as a daily tool, like it just didn't leave me with a lot of confidence about how that aspect of it was handled. And that was a bit of a red flag right there. And then to see like their big first commit, their big first pull request is analytics tracking using third-party tools that it's going to be controversial on its face. I mean, you'd really have to be pretty pretty tuned out to not know how people are going to react to suggesting that you take Google Analytics and you bake it into sort of the iconic free software audio editor. I think you might have hit on some of that right there. I wonder how tuned into the free software side of this whole thing the, uh, the new owners are. If you just think of it as a very popular open source audio editor, well, I mean, none of that's changing, right? That They weren't talking about closing the source at all. But there's this whole other philosophical side of our community that I'm, I'm not sure all outsiders really appreciate. It sort of reminds me of when they started adding all that, all the telemetry to Windows. Now, of course, that's, that's proprietary, so it's, it's definitely different. But the way you modeled your computer, you know, I, I wasn't thinking in the past of old versions of Windows that would just be opening a whole bunch of random network connections behind my back without me asking it. After the new era, that changed. and I had to adapt what I was thinking. And that's the kind of change I think that's upsetting to people in this version of Audacity. Even if you're totally okay with all the information going, it's just one new layer of am I being spied on calculus that up to now, free software has been free from. And I don't know if I'm totally opposed to telemetry because I feel like free software developers need to know what features are being used and how they should prioritize their very limited time. But there are projects that have successfully done tracking in a way that I am comfortable with. The Sync Thing project does a really good job of that. KDE actually has a pretty good metrics policy. It could use a little more filling out, but they've done a really good job of clearly defining what they're going to track and why. And I'm comfortable with both of them. Uh, and so there's, it's not really, if for me, I'm not black and white on this issue. I, there's a little gray for me. I could see I can see where metrics collection can be useful. Uh, and I think Canonical came to a pretty good solution with how they do it with Ubuntu now. It's not too invasive and all of that. This, on the other hand, I'm not as comfortable with. Uh, and because of that red flag, I mean, these are multiple red flags now, because, because it seems like this is something an outsider would do to free software. That makes me a little apprehensive about where things are going with Audacity. And, then, and lastly, Wes, I think what my concern is, and this goes back to them not really fully being insiders in the free software community, is most distributions are just going to patch this right out, regardless of what they do. They're going to patch this right out. And so desktop Linux usage is going to be underrepresented in their statistics because most people install it from their repositories. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but I worry that it would give a unfair picture to the development team. And it seems like they might not be tuned in enough with the free software community to really appreciate the ramifications that might have on the kind of data they're getting back. That's a really good point. And it makes me wonder if we do need more standardization or best practices out there so that we can feel more comfortable with maybe some distros turning that on, getting better representation. Because clearly it's not, we're not going to be able to totally avoid this problem. This is going to keep happening because it's so prevalent in just about all other software right now. It seems like if we don't get ahead of it, we're just going to end up with a whole bunch of partial and non-ideal solutions. Yeah, I don't want every, boy, I really don't like this because I really don't like, I don't like my local applications needing any or using any kind of network resources. Because sometimes I'm literally on the edge of connectivity and every little bit matters. And I don't want my applications reporting back some complicated analytics package to, you know, Google. Give Look, I'm just sending a little bit of JSON, yeah. a few megs. It's None. fine. No, I don't want it. So there, there, there's that version of me out there. But I'm trying to figure out 
what a reasonable middle ground would be. And one idea that's been kicked around, which I do not agree with, but it's funny where we're getting to is, well, what about a centralized metric statement on Linux that the that has a standard API that application developers could use? And that would be free software that could be audited, that we could guarantee operates in a way that anonymizes the user and it collects everything centrally instead of each application sending things out over the internet, each one of them eating CPU and network cycles. And this demon kind of manages it all and then batches it up and sends it off when the machine's not busy. And you know what you end up with? is exactly what Apple and Microsoft have done with their operating systems. System D metrics D. Yeah. I just and nobody wants that, right? But it, and and the but the thing that really kind of I think stinks is this is going to be the way things go in the future. It, more applications are going to bake this kind of stuff in because developer time is precious. I guess the question then is how do you feel about that trade-off? I mean, we really like using Audacity and it has a lot of great features. But as you acknowledged earlier, quite a few of them could use a little bit of leaven. If these features, if this telemetry really helps make that happen, if it you know, lets you have a voice in saying, these are the things I use, this is where you should spend some time, I don't know. Will you, uh, will you turn it on? Would you go grab the binary build and opt in? I might. It, it does feel like a bit of a fair trade. I've gotten years of value out of this software, and there are some areas that could use some leaven. And so if, if me participating in that got attention to those areas, maybe just a little bit more, that might be useful because, I mean, how many users is it going to be? Tens of thousands that turn this on? Because remember, it's opt-in. So, I mean, it's going to be a pretty small sample size. So you may actually have a representable impact on the data collected. And I wonder, too, because it's going to be more and more of a thing. So I've got to come to this decision. And I'm definitely going to be the least comfortable with Google Analytics. I, I thought about this a little bit and thought to myself, would I feel better if they were hosting some open source analytics package? And I think I would. I actually think I would feel better about it because being part of Google Analytics feels like you're part of a wider surveillance network that now they say they're not going to do the cross domain stuff, but it's still at the end of the day being collected by Google, which I just believe Google is using that information to correlate other activity by me. It just seems like why wouldn't they? And I'm not super comfortable participating in that wider surveillance network, but I think I would be comfortable participating in a metric solution that they hosted that was a known open source package. Uh, but if they're not going to do that, I think in this instance, I probably will try to use it as a show of support for the team. Um, not really happy about it and not not really a great first introduction to the Muse group. And I want to say also for the record, we have reached out to them to, uh, for, to clear up any information. And so far we have not heard back. Yeah, I think there was always going to be, you know, some event like this, different levels of severity, perhaps, but some kind of uh, confrontation, maybe, or just a getting to know you with the Muse group and the existing user base. Guess we're just getting right to it with this one. <laughs> we sure are. This is definitely going to be one to follow. And no doubt about it, the conversation is not yet done. So we will follow it for you and all of the other developments in the world of Linux and free software. So go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Check out what's for sale in the Jupiter Garage sale at jupitergarage.com. There's new stuff up all the time and retro limited time stuff as well. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next week. Next week.